Welcome to the EcoBot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. Throughout this series, we'll touch on the increasingly important role that technology plays in wetland science. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we're highlighting women in wetland science and technology, both past and present. The protection of the waters of the United States and the world is of utmost importance to all people, to every nation, and to all of our non-human relations. As scientists, we help interpret what's going on in the patterns of nature and water for laypersons. Women are major contributors to both the biological sciences and to geospatial technologies that are helping to usher wetland science into the 21st century. In this podcast, we'll hear how nine women who are professional wetland scientists, engineers, and GIS specialists navigated career achievements and obstacles. Find out how women scientists have promulgated unique scientific approaches, created cutting edge software, and written policy in respect to management and monitoring of our natural heritage. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our very own Alana Cloud, who is going to get us started with an intro to some historic women in wetland science and technology. And then we'll meet our panelists, all women currently working in wetland science. Alana Cloud. So before we head into our panel discussion, I wanna take everybody briefly through kind of the unique circumstances that exist for women who choose to pursue careers in both wetland science and STEM in general. So throughout history and in particular the past century and prior, women have been major contributors to the modern environmental science space. A few noteworthy examples that most of you might recognize include women like Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring revealed the deep environmental problems caused by the overuse of pesticides. And she is also widely credited for her major role in the modern environmental movement. Berta Caceres was a Honduran environmental activist whose efforts brought international attention to the threat that dam development created for local peoples and their environment. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, definitely relevant when we're talking about wetlands here today, was a conservationist known for her staunch defense of the Everglades against efforts to drain it and reclaim the land for development. So these women are only a few of many, many groundbreaking women leaders involved in the emergence of environmental science and activism. So let's jump ahead and look at the state of where we are today. Currently, the number of women in STEM is growing. It's been increasing significantly since the 1990s. In 2009, just over 140,000 women graduated with STEM degrees. By 2016, that number had grown to over 200,000, which is nearly a 43% increase in just seven years, but still have a lot of work to do. So today, women represent only 28% of the overall STEM workforce, but interestingly enough, in the biological services field, that number jumps to 47%. So 
definitely something to acknowledge in terms of the number of women representing here today and environmental biological services in general. But why does this gap still exist? You know, the STEM gap is widely recognized in terms of the disproportionate barriers that women still encounter today when they're looking to join the STEM space. These include things like gender stereotypes and math anxiety. STEM fields are often viewed as masculine and teachers, parents often underestimate math abilities of young girls. There's often male-dominated cultures because fewer women work in STEM, and these fields tend to perpetuate inflexible, exclusionary, male-dominated cultures. There's also, which we're going to talk about significantly, is there's often fewer role models. Today, we definitely highlight some really important role models um, that I think a lot of the, the younger generation of girls in STEM can look up to, but Typically, girls have fewer examples of people like them to inspire their interest in these fields. In 2009, the UN declared the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. There has been, in the past couple decades, a lot more recognition for the important role that women play in STEM, as well as the disproportionate barriers that they tend to encounter. So it's essential and more and more recognized uh, that we need to close that gender gap that we saw earlier to really bring more women into these fields to really promote innovation in both science, technology, and uh, engineering. So what can we do about it? As of today, there are dozens of organizations working to empower women to participate in STEM by building a supportive community of role models and mentors to help bridge that gap. Some of those organizations include, especially prominent is in the Society of Wetland Scientists, the Women in Wetlands Group. There is the American Association of University Women, Scientista, uh, Million Women Mentors, largely focused on bringing together a network of women who are participating in the space, excelling in the space to help inspire younger generations to join the field. So that's what organizations are doing, but what can we as firms, as individuals, and as companies do to help take action and do the hard work to bridge that gap? We can start by inspiring the next generation by mentoring girls and young women early in their educational careers. We can work to retain women leaders by creating a work environment that supports those who might be returning to work after a time to start a family or by smashing gender bias in the workplace and in policy across the board and addressing the lingering pay gap. It's, it's something that still exists today where according to a number of different research studies, women in environmental science still make approximately 80 cents to the dollar that the man makes. So we've definitely still got a ways to go, but that's just some of what we can do as organizations and individuals to help uh, take action. But what we're here to do today is talk about the amazing women that have bridged that gap, that have overcome any barriers that they've encountered in their careers to become leaders in the space. Uh, so in the onus on improving gender diversity in STEM cannot be placed solely on individual women's shoulders, but systematic change can be slow. So how can women like our amazing panelists today navigate their fields to be successful despite those pervasive structural barriers that we talked about earlier? So in 2018, the Harvard Business Review published results of a 10-year study on what makes women successful in STEM. Some of these factors include 
claiming credit for your ideas. Too often in history, we've seen men get the credit for huge advancements that have been made by actually their female counterparts. And we need to invest in peer networks. And by investing in those peer networks and building up other women, we're empowering other women to, to rise up, building up protégés. So that's the mentorship, right? Being authentic to and owning exactly who you are and your accomplishment and projecting the confidence that says, I'm a woman in this space that otherwise has barriers in place and probably structural challenges that I might disproportionately encounter. But by projecting that confidence and, and owning the success, women can absolutely attain unlimited success. So with that, I'm super excited to introduce our amazing panel of nine accomplished women from across the wetland science and technology space. The conversation today is going to be moderated by myself and Angela Stanley. We'll go ahead and start with brief introductions from each of our panelists. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass the reins over to our first panelist. So Alana, thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Thanks everyone for, for joining us. And uh, thanks to Ecobot for, for making this possible by helping us um, build our community. My name is Megan Lang and I've been what Bill Wyland terms a wetlander since at least my time in undergraduate when I spent my summers in an abandoned rice field assessing hydrarchs session, but I suspect that I was uh, a wetlander long before that. I'm currently the chief scientist for the National Wetlands Inventory. I've really had the, the privilege of supporting many impactful wetland efforts over the years, but I believe that the impact of the Wetland Status and Trends project is, is really what I'm, I'm most Crowd of. And so status and trends measures uh, wetland area and change through time. And we report that information to the American public and to Congress at least once a decade. This is very much a collaborative effort, and it has greatly benefited from the support of multiple federal agencies, including NOAA. And at NOAA, it has greatly benefited from the participation um, and support of Susan Marie Stedman, who you will soon hear from. I feel very lucky to be part of the Status and Trends Project, a project that not only provides the yardstick used to measure the effects of policies like no net loss, but also a project that has catalyzed billions of dollars worth of wetland conservation and restoration dollars. With that, I'll pass the torch. Thank you very much, Megan. And I am also um, very proud to be um, part of the status and trends work that Fish and Wildlife Service leads. I am a wetland scientist who was fortunate enough to grow up on a salt marsh on Cape Cod. So I've been a wetlander for as long as I can remember. Nothing I love more than the smell of low tide. My background is in coastal geology and, uh, and marine science. And I have been working for NOAA since 1993, when they hired me to be their Clean Water Act specialist. And the first project I got to work on, and the one that was, I think, probably to this day, the most fun project I've ever worked on, was something that's called the Federal Guidance to the Establishment, Use, and Operation of Mitigation Banks. And it's 
you're not familiar with what a mitigation bank is, it's essentially a commercial approach to fulfilling the compensatory mitigation requirements of people who get Clean Water Act permits. And I came in at the beginning of the Clinton administration, and the Clinton administration wanted to change the way things have been done among federal agencies and get us to cooperate better. In particular, the Clinton administration wanted us to work out any differences we had before anything got sent to the public. And so the Council of Environmental Quality formed something called the White House Wetlands Working Group that included staff and political people and lawyers from all the federal agencies that were working in wetlands at the time. And, and I was the staff person. And what was interesting was that the political person I was working with was female and the lawyer I was working with from NOAA was female. And everybody else in that group was male. So it was kind of interesting that, you know, we'd go to these meetings in our power suits and we'd enter the room and, and we'd be like, here we are, the women of NOAA. But at the staff level, this project was fun because I was working with people who were very open-minded and for the most part young. And half of that group was female too. And so what I remember from that time is, is people who were very very intent on developing good guidance for this new industry of mitigation banking and basing what we were developing on science. And we also had advisors from the Army Corps of Engineers Institute of Water Resources, some economics advisors. So we developed guidance that was based on science and on economics. And that guidance stood for more than 20 years before the Army Corps of Engineers adopted it essentially as their 2008 mitigation rule. And that mitigation banking industry is now a $25 billion industry that supports more than 200,000 jobs. It's expanded into not only Clean Water Act permits, but Endangered Species Act compensation and even compensation under the Oil Pollution Act and, and CERCLA. So it, it was a pretty amazing thing to be involved in at the beginning of my career at, at NOAA. And I think that, uh, at least I hope, that our new administration will reinitiate some of that desire for cooperation and, and thinking outside the box. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Marla Stelk. I'm the executive director at the Association of State Wetland Managers. ASWM is a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. And although our name of our organization may seem that we're exclusive to state wetland programs, we're, we're actually not. Anyone can be a member. And we work with a lot of folks in federal government, tribes, other nonprofits, the private sector as well. I have been in my role at the association as executive director since 2018. Previous to that, I worked with the association as a policy analyst. and I was originally hired in 2013. Wetlands weren't necessarily a, a huge part of my professional life before coming to the association, although I had uh, taken a lot of science courses and I, I actually have had a wetland delineation course, so I can do that. But my background is really more, mostly in environmental policy. My first project at the organization was on a two-year EPA National Wetland Program Development Grant-funded project titled Raising the Bar on Wetland Restoration Success Nationwide. 
The project was designed to look back at the rate of success or, or lack thereof in wetland restoration since the landmark 1989 publication, what the wetland creation and restoration, the status of the science was published that was edited by John Cussler, ASWM's founder, along with Mary Kentula, Dr. Mary Kentula, I should say. So that publication had multiple contributors to it, some of which we were actually able to bring on to our work group for that particular project. My favorite, well, I, I shouldn't say my favorite, but one of the my biggest role models that became one of my biggest role models after working with her was Dr. Joy Zedler, who was one of the original contributors to that publication and who, who was an integral, very active member of that work group. And for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Zedler, I highly recommend looking at her a large volume of work. She's one of the, the biggest role models in my mind in terms of wetland science for women out there. Also had Robin Lewis, Mark Fonseca, Joe Schischler, Robert Brooks. It was a really great team of people. We had about 25 total on that working group. Our final white paper that we collectively worked on as that group was entitled Wetland Restoration, Contemporary Issues and Lessons Learned, which laid a roadmap for ways in which we could collectively and individually achieve greater performance outcomes for multiple different types of wetland restorations. But I still think of it as my favorite project because of the diverse and collaborative nature of the work that we did. And we were able to achieve a really great volume of recorded webinars, but it also allowed me to follow my passion and write a white paper that you see on here titled Ecosystem Service Valuation for Wetland Restoration, bringing together physical science, social science, merging social values, economic values, cultural values, and ecological values in a way in which daylights the intentionally or unintentionally often overlooked intrinsic values and public goods, which actually Bind touched on a little bit in his uh, inauguration speech, the public goods, which are all too often and left out of policy decisions in this country. So that's, that's a pos- passion of mine, that triple bottom line. It's been something I've been working on for over 25 years. But this project also spearheaded several other projects. So it's been a building block for us. It's been a foundation of other projects where we've moved away from just looking at the site to the larger watershed, to looking at more urban suburban centers, as well as the rural areas, and how that interacts with communities. So it's allowed me to bring in my academic interests, my background, my minimal background in science, but I do have a little one, the sustainable land use and environmental economics. But it also forced me to stretch myself and learn more about and dig in more into this wetlands area of wetland science and restoration. Greatly expanded my peer network of colleagues as well. And some of you are on this this panel today, which is very exciting. So I'll, I'll leave it with that. But thank you again, Jeremy and everyone. It's an honor to be on this panel. Thank you. Hi, I'm Melanie Vanderhoff. I'm a research geographer with the U.S. Geological Survey. I specialize in using data and imagery from satellites to look at how ecosystems respond to mechanisms of change. And a lot of my research has focused on how land use and climate influences wetlands, lakes, and rivers. The uh, wetland project I want to mention, I found really rewarding because of its close ties both to policy, but also kind of the critical component that collaboration played in it. The project started in um, 2014. It was a cross-agency research project led by EPA's Office of Research Research and Development. And the purpose was to produce relevant science to inform the implementation of the Clean Water Act. The project was focused on evaluating the hydrological connectivity of wetlands to downstream waters. And this area had been identified at the time to be kind of a gap in in the literature. The project was focused initially on the prairie pothole region. This region has lots and lots of small wetlands. These wetlands really respond to the dramatic climate variability that this region experiences. 
I led the remote sensing component of the project. And what I found to be really fun was working to integrate diverse data sets to increase our confidence in our findings. For example, in addition to the remote sensing based analyses, I had an opportunity to collaborate with Lauren Hay, a hydrological modeler, to use field and remote sensing data to parameterize the wetland storage within the hydrological model. I collaborated with Renee Brooks, to, who uses isotope, isotope analysis, and we use the remote sensing products to provide a verification of the isotope work. And I also collaborated with Kate Schofield, a biologist looking at wildlife impacts. We use the remote sensing products to look at how upland travel distances changed as wetlands responded to climate variability. And in fact, it wasn't until I went back to look at this project that I realized that most of the most successful collaborations were all other female scientists, which I hadn't even realized until uh, <laughs> I went back to look at it. But anyways, happy to be a part of the panel. I'm honored to be part of this panel. Thank you for the invitation to join. Um, my name is Laura Borjo-Chavez, and I'm from the Michigan Tech Research Institute, which is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's part of the Michigan Technological University. And there I'm a senior research scientist and also an adjunct assistant professor, but primarily I do research and my background's in forest ecology, but I've done a lot of work in wetlands and it's just been building over the past more and more wetland work. And I, I really use what we see in the field and compare that to what we're seeing from remote sensing and then scale that information up so we can see variability and changes going on across the landscape. I've done work in the a lot of work in the Great Lakes and actually work from the Arctic down to the tropics. But what I wanted to highlight today was a, a project that that I've been working on for since 2015, and it's where the wetlands meet wildfire. Peatlands have a very special place in my heart. I, I love peatlands, and as someone said earlier, I love the smell of them. The under your feet, the Labrador tea crushing, it just has this great smell every year when I go in the field. And this project is, is looking at the resiliency of peatlands to widespread wildfire that's been occurring in Northwest Territories. They had, I think, 3.2 hectares, 3.2 million hectares, I mean, of wildfire occurred there in 2014, and that was followed by another drought year in 2015. And so we've been focused on these fires that burned everything, wetland and upland alike, and looking at the peatlands and how they, they were affected by this wildfire. So in order to do that across the landscape, we visited 152 one-hectare sites, sampling everything from the burn severity to what was regrowing and the soil moisture and peat depth. And, and then we ended up using that to, to understand what was going on in 142 wildfires across that region. And then from this, we needed maps of where the peatlands were. So we, we used remote sensing data from radar and optical data to make that those maps that are shown there, the purples are the bends and bogs. And then we map the fire severity to the peat layer. So there's been a lot of work mapping fire severity, but it's usually to the crown. And because the crowns are usually consumed, we're able to see the ground. And, and it's really that organic soils that we're concerned about because there's a lot of carbon stored there. And that has implications for both post-fire recovery as well as carbon consumption. So in this area, we've been measuring what's regrowing in the field in, in all of these sites and looking at the resiliency of these peatlands to the to the drought conditions. In uplands, the black spruce is not as not as resilient. There are some cases where it's not coming back at all and it's due to climate change and these increased droughts and fire frequency. But in peatlands they seem seem to be um, 
safe havens for, for the black spruce, at least for now. So this project is, is ongoing for another couple of years, and we're also looking into modeling. So taking our field and our remote sensing data and putting that into ecosystem models, as well as fire effects models to predict into the future with changes in climate, what will happen. Thank you. Hi guys, my name is Amber Robinson. I am an environmental scientist and project manager for HDR engineering here in Lafayette, Louisiana. I am a born and bred Cajun, so wetlands are just a part of my blood. I've you know grown up in coastal Louisiana, crabbing the waters, fishing, um, boating, so even hydrosliding in the intercoastal believe it or not. So um, getting into wetland science as a young person was was a pretty much a no-brainer for me. My education is actually in business. I have a business management degree and an environmental and sustainable resources degree from Lafayette, University of Louisiana in Lafayette. So it was a pretty easy, I guess, transition for me to, to jump from school to environmental consulting, considering, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have a business background as well in environmental consulting. So I've, I've been doing this for about eight years, and I want to talk about one of my favorite projects, which actually occurred my very first year as an environmental scientist. I, I, I decided to go to school for environmental science because I knew Louisiana was losing our coastal land very quickly. And I wanted to be even a small part of that solution. And this project in particular was a result of the BP oil spill. After they did the resources, uh, natural resources damage assessment, they, they, the federal government does select projects through some public hearings to determine you know, how we will mitigate using the funds that come from the, the responsible party. In this case, it was BP. And I was so lucky to be able to work on one of those projects, which required an environmental impact assessment. And so that was my very first project. It was called the Louisiana Marine Fisheries Enhancement Research and Science Center. Such a long-winded name. I hated saying that name when I would talk to people. So, but anyway, it was basically a marine fisheries uh, research facility that was predicted or, or proposed to be built in, one in Lake Charles and one in Plaquemines Parish. In Louisiana, and they would do research on marine fishery that uh, were impacted by things such as oil spills. And really interesting project that required a lot of field work and uh, a lot of impact assessment work. So I was able to dip my toe in both sort of the NEPA process through this impact statement, and then also oh, my very first wetland delineation, which was very interesting. The one in Lake Charles in involved a very com a very complex wetland complex that had NEMA mounds in it. So there was a cultural resources component to it. And we used the transect method to gather data while we were out there. It was several hundred acres worth of property that we looked at. And it took three teams, roughly two to three weeks worth of field work. And then we came back and used that data to digitize and map out the wetlands so that I could prepare uh, an approved jurisdictional determination application. So I got to learn so much from this project. Not only did I get to do all of that, but I had a really enlightened male boss who gave me an opportunity to also help manage the project. So I was able to kind of dabble in business management and my technical background, which was in wetland science with this one project all in my first year working at HDR. So incredible first experience. I really leaned into it and it's taken me, I think, pretty far from that one project. So thanks for having me.
Looking forward to the conversation. Hi, everyone. My name is Gina O'Neill. I'm a technical consultant with Esri in the Denver, Colorado area. So my work with, with wetlands really centers around trying to develop an automated cost-effective workflow for mapping wetlands, being able to do so in a way that minimizes the extent that manual surveyors need to go in and overall just support the process of permitting wetlands and wetland management and conservation. So this work is manifested into an automated workflow entitled the Wetland Identification Model or WIM and was really born out of my dissertation work at University of Virginia and I'm really lucky now to be able to carry it over and continue to develop it within my role at Esri. And in doing that, it's now implemented as an Arc Hydro tool set. And if you're not familiar with Arc Hydro, it's um, a set of hydrology specific spatial analytics tools and workflows. And I'll also mention that my background is in hydroinformatics, which is the intersection of hydrology and data science and informatics. So just some more details on the WIM. It uses remote sensing data and specifically LIDAR terrain to derive these topographic drivers of wetland formation and uses those within machine learning to learn from examples of wetlands to decide what are the characteristics that most often point to wetlands or probable wetlands and then use that to predict likely wetlands in new areas. So essentially screening large areas for the most likely wetland locations. And now I am actively working on further developing the WIM. How can we decide the characteristics other than just topographic ones to make the WIM suitable for other landscapes? And those really flat landscapes are ones like the prairie pothole region, which some women have already spoken about. And again, that end goal still continues to be uh, to use the WIM to potentially support DOTs and other environmental planning entities to help with that wetland conservation and knowing where wetlands are in a cost-effective way. Um, hi guys, my name is Kelly Samuels. I am pleased to be part of this panel. Thanks to everyone that arranged it and made it possible. A little bit about myself. I was a student of agronomy up in the Northeast of the United States. And most of my colleagues at the time were starting work, you know, doing work in turf grasses on golf courses. And I really had no interest in golf. So my major professor said, you should go to Florida. They have a lot of wetlands. And so I actually obtained an internship down in the state of Florida. So I moved from Pennsylvania to, to, to Florida and haven't left since. It's been about 25 years. I've been blessed enough to you know, maintain a career now for 25 years here, primarily working in the Southeast within wetlands and with threatened endangered species. I had no idea that consulting was even a, a career choice, but I was uh, grateful to have my eyes opened and given the opportunity, which I, I, I stayed at and actually eight Ecom bought my predecessor firm. So I have all 25 years with one firm, which is kind of unusual in this day and age. The project that I wanted to talk about that I feel uh, that I really enjoy, have enjoyed over the last couple of years is uh, conducting an environmental impact study for the National Park Service down at the Big Cypress National Preserve, which is adjacent to Everglades. Um, National Park down in South Florida. We were tasked with creating a plan for ORV use in the backcountry and how we could, you know, create controls and management suggestions to reduce, or minimize and reduce impacts as the majority of the 750,000 acres there is wetland. And some of those wetlands are highly erodible and they are kind of unique to this area. So we we went through that process. We actually just came out of the public 
comment process. So I'm in the process of analyzing the 1500 comments that we got on the EIS. So I actually spent three hours this morning with this client right before this call going through everything, but it's a really unique project and it's really fun. I, I, I really enjoy consulting because I've never really do the same thing twice. We just like pick up the knowledge base and apply it and expand it. And that has, I've really enjoyed that over my career. Hi everybody, my name is Caitlin Burke. I work with Resource Environmental Solutions in Chicago. I've only been at this company about six months. It's been a blast so far. Previously, I was with a civil engineering firm in the Chicago suburbs. So most of my background is, is more civil engineering based, um, doing a lot of wetland delineation work and permitting for civil engineering projects. So I just wanted to talk about a project I did along those lines. It was a very large culvert replacement. I think it could all be considered a bridge um, located up in Antioch in Lake County, Illinois on Edwards Road. So the creek that flows through here was called the Dutch Gap Canal and it contained the Iowa darter, which at the time was a threatened species, it has since been delisted which is a good thing. So we had to do some incidental take permitting. Obviously we had Waters of the U.S. and so did Army Corps permitting for that. So we had very minor impact to the wetlands of the creek. And what I thought was interesting was how the project was actually constructed in a way that the creek flow could be maintained the entire time so as not to impede the, the route of the Iowa darter. So you can kind of tell how uh, the cofferdam was constructed to work on half of the culvert at a time while keeping the flow going through the other half. We also utilized the drone a lot to, to grab footage of the project while it was under construction. So I think that covers it for me. I think we're gonna get to questions after this and I'm excited to, to have the conversation. Thank you for listening to the EcoBot podcast. On the next episode, we'll wrap up our conversation about women in wetland science and technology. And here's some of the panel's responses to the Q&A. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and follow along on any podcast app, including the one you are using now. If you'd like to learn more about how EcoBot is helping transform the industry, and to see what we can do to help your company by scheduling a demo, you can find us on LinkedIn or visit ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.